With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today, it is a special NBA Rookie Extensions Bonanza episode. It's a three-parter. The first part, as you can see here, if you're watching on YouTube, in beautiful black and white, coming to you from the <laughs> Bay Area, it's Danny LaRue. Couldn't be more excited. It's like we'll sepia talk- tone. It's like sepia tone without the sepia, without actually having a filter on. It's just the nature of how I'm choosing to live my life in this exact moment in time. <laughs> see, like, I'm so glad that the YouTube viewer is going to be able to see it like this. So that like I'm not just getting this alone where you literally are almost in black and white. Like you're literally in the third man, or I guess it's over that shoulder, like my uh poster behind me. Uh the second part of this episode is gonna be with Kelly Eco. We're gonna talk about the crazy Kevin Porter extension that broke my brain, as I'm sure it broke Danny's brain. We oh, might yeah. end up touching on it just a little bit here in this segment. And then the third segment is the DeAndre Hunter extension that happened uh we're going to talk about that with brad roland both of those segments are already extended they're already published up on youtube the full podcast episode is going up into your feeds as you have clicked uh on wednesday morning tuesday night uh danny i'm glad that we got a chance to talk because this is kind of a weird extension year it feels like a lot of the big deals as usual got done early you can always expect the max deals to get done And I'll list off a big list of the first round deals here in a moment. But it felt like a weird year. There were only two deals that got done on extension day. A lot of the deals got done a bit early or just didn't happen at all. In the case of someone like Grant Williams, PJ Washington, Cam Johnson, for a number of factors. What is your overall takeaway about this extension window? So this window is shaped so far more than any other by the upcoming national TV deal. And so one way to think about yeah. it. So other, unless you're getting a full max, like a, you know, 25% or higher, you cannot get a five, you cannot get five new years. So we're really talking about four year and theoretically fewer contracts. This is a really fun extension year because so not counting the current one, when you add four new years, half of them are going to be on the current TV deal and half of them are going to be on the new one. We do not know yet, A, what the actual terms of that national TV deal are going to be. The expectations are super high right now, potentially two and a half to three times the revenue from that part of it. That's not the whole pie, but it's a big part of the pie. And then the, so, so you have that component in there. So the, and we don't also know how that revenue is going to be implemented in terms of the salary cap itself. So is it going to be, a, you know, they try to flatten it a little bit and then just send out money to the players. Do they do a spike again or something else? But so you have all that. And that's one important context here. So that's why teams in many circumstances could be more aggressive going for these extensions. Because well, and I do I do also want to note the idea potentially of expansion, which oh, sure, Adam Silver has been very clear about uh having an interest in, let's say. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether or not that comes in in two years, three years, four years down the road, I think remains to be seen. Right. And so that's a component of it as well that could theoretically expand the pool. Those teams probably don't have a ton of, you know, a ton of obligations on the books. I think that's going to be more for next year and the year after, because then those players could hit restricted free agency when those teams exist. So that could be because my thought is they're going to line up this TV deal and then they're going to talk about expansion, get the fees right. and all that fun stuff, which is well, interesting. And, yeah. And on top of it as well there there's this idea that like, will teams that expand it, like for the first time, will they get into the pie for the first couple of years that they're there? Sure. Uh, when the Bobcats came in, they had 66% of the salary cap as opposed to the full salary cap. Mm-hmm. So like how there's a lot to play out there. Just one quick note on that. I don't, I'm not privy to all of this and there could be elements in these negotiations that are outside of this, but like, it seems like the likelihood is that if there are expansion teams, it'll be Seattle and or Las Vegas. Seattle is mm-hmm. a top market. You would act to me if you were selling that to, you know, to the broadcast groups, whether that's the existing ones or Amazon, Google, whoever's going to get in the bidding, you'd want to say, hey, we're going to have a team in Seattle. You can do this. But maybe they do that kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We don't have one yet, but our expectation, like, I don't know how that changes the offers or maybe. The, and I know that the other owners want to wait because then it becomes more it gets more leverage like if you agree to the deal and then you add them in then you can put these constraints but if they're in and then the deal happens then it's harder but so okay so Um, from the team perspective that's that's an important part of this equation is the idea that there that things could be going up and so we'll like we'll talk about brandon clark and a few of these other ones that are really interesting from that perspective from the player's perspective extensions are always about mitigation of risk and so what that means is you're getting life-changing money. A lot of times people who have never had anything close to this in their lives a year early. And you could ask various different players about the things that can go wrong in the year, even if things are looking good for you. And so, and, and the thing about the rising tide of all of this money is $20 million, $25 million. That's a lot to turn down. Yeah. Maybe you'll get 25 or 30 or something else like that, but it's, it's hard. Like this is incredible money. Yeah. This is, this will make your life a lot better. And the marginal difference between your 24th and 25th million dollars is very different than your first and second. Right. Right. That's hundred percent. Right. I do just want to list off the extensions that did get done. Zion Williamson got done. Uh, Max deal with some injury protections, if I remember correctly. Yeah. We, right, I Danny? still think we don't know all of that publicly, but maybe it's been out there. I was, I wasn't here for five weeks. John Morant, a full boat max. R.J. Barrett, four years, 107, if I remember correctly. That sounds right, yeah. Uh, DeAndre Hunter, four years, $90 million, $5 million in incentives. Darius Garland, a full boat max. Uh, let's see here. Tyler Hero, four years, 120 with some uh, incentives. Going down the list, Brandon Clark, four years, $52 million with some incentives, not many incentives there. And Nasir Little with a four-year, $28 million extension. Um, that one blew my mind a little bit. Uh, Jordan Poole, four-year, $123, $122 yep. million extension. Keldon Johnson was like a four-year, $70 million extension with a couple of incentives there. Kevin Porter with the four-year $82 million deal, which has a bizarre structure that is like $16 million guaranteed with opt-out dates, as we'll talk about with Kelly Eco. Um, it, it seems like those dates are only on the Houston side as opposed to being on the Kevin Porter side. Um, oh, and did you mention DeAndre Hunter? 
I did four years. Okay, I, 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 I maybe missed that. Yeah. So those are the deals that got done. That means guys like Matisse Thibel, two times all defense, Grant Williams, terrific role player, uh, you know, Cam Johnson, PJ Washington, Jackson Hayes was a starter on a playoff team last year, you know, sort of, I guess. Uh, none of these deals got done. And I can see why, because these guys have kind of wild party years coming up for a number of reasons. Uh, let's talk about the guys that got deals done first, though. Uh, is there a deal that stands out to you uh, beyond the Max guys? Like, I don't even know how interesting it is to talk about John Morant, Zion Williamson. Of course, those deals were going to get done on some level. Um, is there a deal that stands out to you outside of the Max guys? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to see how they work out. But you, Jordan Poole and Tyler Hero, the two Wisconsin kids, are going to be joined at the hip for a long time because they have similar strengths and weaknesses as a player, as players. And they also are on very good teams right now. And so, you know, they got similar money. And for the question with both of them is, how impactful are they as playoff performers? Like, so they're mm -hmm. wonderful regular season floor raisers that can do stuff with the ball in their hands and are actually sometimes underappreciated catch-and-shoot guys but they're also extremely limited defensively and they also have been surrounded. They're surrounded by other really good players. And so yeah. you have this question of what are they when, when you need more of them and also are you going to need more of them? Because the Warriors yeah. have a lot of really good players. We don't know how Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson are going to age much less be on the team. Same story with Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry and everyone else in Miami. Bam, of course, so they're really interesting because you're trying to do two different things as, as the team and the player here. So as the team, you're trying to make an offer that the player will actually accept, which is an important thing, Like if, if, that's, if that's part of a goal. But you also don't want to get too close to the offer sheet number. And so what that basically is, is that it's the 25% max, theoretically, for that year. And then 5% raises each year after. So like the the example this year was DeAndre Ayton. So that, that's what DeAndre Ayton signed an offer sheet with the Pacers, which the Suns matched in like five minutes or whatever it was. And right. so the reason why that matters for the team is, is the idea of risk mitigation. I talked about it a lot for the player, but for the team, because if you're signing the player to basically the same money they could get a year later, yeah, you might do that to make them happy, and there is value in that. We've seen that over the years, including with the aforementioned DeAndre Aiden. But you're taking on a lot of risk as a team because you're committing to this a year early. And you do that for John Morant. You do that for Zion Williamson because they're amazing. But do you do that for Tyler Hero or Jordan Poole? Less so. And so those were really interesting negotiations. They ended up pretty close to that 25% based on the current estimates, but not all the way there, like five, six million short but then they get higher raises because it's the 8% because they're with their current team. So they're, you know, it's, it's a modest amount less. And so that's a, that was a really interesting part of this equation for these players who are simultaneously established and valuable, but not stars, not cornerstones. Yeah. This draft in general has a lot of those guys, the 2019 draft we're talking about. Uh, there have only been three all-star level players in this class thus far, Zion Williamson, John Morant, Darius Garland. I'll be honest with you, I don't know how many more we're going to get. Like, Tyler Hero could sneak one. Jordan Poole could sneak one. I don't know if I see that for DeAndre Hunter. You know, R.J. Barrett, I think, has a real shot to sneak one at some point. Um, 
But in general, like there is a chance that we look back on this class and there are three all-stars, which would be very below average for a draft class. I think the number is typically about six. Uh, that's not to say it's like a terrible draft class or anything, but I think it ended up being a pretty difficult draft class to evaluate if only because, you know, you look at the three guys that went 28, 29, 30, <laughs> they ended up getting pretty big extensions. And the two that stood out to me were Keldon Johnson and DeAndre Hunter. By, yeah, that, that's totally fair. By any stretch of the imagination, Keldon Johnson has been a better player than DeAndre Hunter so far. But this is something that Brad Roland and I will talk about. The idea of draft position tends to be pretty sticky in these rookie extension deals. Yes, it does. If Kelvin Johnson had gone fourth overall and had done what he's done thus far in his career, there's no way he's signing for 470. He's signing for like 4120. Pretty easy, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty reasonable. And I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see how things like Keldon Johnson's three point percentage change change over the years. So like he, so Keldon Johnson last year made forty percent of five threes a game. Like that's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty good. I mean, the volume was a big uptick from where he was early in his career. If that's real, then we're we're talking about a, a fascinating player and where he fits in and and where he fits in defensively with this Spurs team is also. Really notable. And yeah, the stickiness, and especially, and you know this, but it's important to emphasize, when the person who drafted that player is the person negotiating the extension. Yeah. Because that's another I, DeAndre Hunter point as well. Right. I, I talk about how like restricted free agency is about falling in love for other bidders, but it's also about that for extensions because it's like the more the more you believe and you you believed in them in the first place because you're the one who did it, then the more likely you are to go there. That's part of the reason I was surprised a Rui Hachimura deal didn't get done because Tommy Shepard really believes in his guys for pretty hard. And I, I was a little bit, but part of that might've just been the uncertainty with Rui and his role and everything else. So yeah, I think those are really interesting, the stickiness there. And that ties in with something that I think is going to be like, was looming in the background for a lot of these extensions with the pool and hero and Keldon and Deandre Hunter, like we just talked about is the teams that could potentially have cap space in 2023. And overwhelmingly, these aren't the good teams. This isn't like the Warriors in 16 having the space for Kevin Durant or anything else. These are teams like the Rockets and the Pacers and potentially the Orlando Magic who are intriguing young teams, but also teams that are young and trying to get better. And so Hmm. it could actually be depending on what Troy Weaver and a couple of the other variables in this do, Weaver, the general manager of the Pistons, a circumstance where Jordan Poole or DeAndre Hunter or Keldon Johnson would be the apple of one of their eyes. And then that's when you start to get into some real problems as the team in question. Like, and because if the cap is, looks like it's going up and maybe we have a TV deal like reported or anything like that, or the teams know and we don't. And they're like, Oh, this is going to go crazy. Like anything we sign these guys to an offer sheet is going to look great. And so then that is a very real risk. And I think that like John Hollinger or our colleague at the athletic had talked about how they're like, basically it would be very hard to sign a bad extension this year from the team perspective. I don't, wouldn't go quite that far, but I think that there, there were teams that were very willing to play ball. And I think the Hawks surprisingly in the deal that came kind of like after the deadline, or at least was announced after the deadline was the, was one of those that fit that description. Yeah, it, it is interesting trying to navigate 
the, essentially like the sunk costs of yep. what someone has spent already, right? Like the Hawks not only like really loved DeAndre Hunter in the draft, but they paid quite a bit to get him. Like they traded up from number eight to number four and gave up like additional assets. I think they gave up 16 because they gave up the Nikhil Alexander Walker pick and they gave up like another first round pick to get DeAndre Hunter. So like they're, they're committed to the DeAndre Hunter experience. On the other side, the Rockets are not really committed to the Kevin Porter experience. They literally gave up nothing to get Kevin Porter. And they signed him to this deal that completely broke my brain when I first saw it uh, in terms of the structure where it is essentially, uh, as I'm going to talk about Kelly Eco, it is a football contract. Like it is a deal that's 16 million guaranteed for the first year and then they can get out of it at any point. This is, like, I'm going to go into it more with Kelly, but I I have to get your thoughts on this, if only because this is like a cap nerd's dream uh, as like a weirdo deal that could be a crazy trade chip, that could be uh, a a crazy, let's just get out of jail free card if it doesn't work out with Kevin Porter. There are just so many different things here that kind of come into play. There are. And I thought that a Porter Jr. extension would not happen in part because of the uncertainty surrounding him, not only his role on the court, I think Porter Jr. is better off ball than on ball. And the Rockets just haven't really had the right guys to play off him. Jalen Green, if he takes a huge step this year, could actually be that foil, which I'm excited about. But also yeah. because of the off-court stuff, which which has been well-reported and everything over the years. And that's a part of why Cleveland let him go for nothing. And, you know, as, as good as they are right now, like if Cleveland had had another player as good as him, they probably wouldn't have, for example, traded for Karis LeVert. Like that, that's sort of a circumstance. So with with Porter, what with the way I like to think about trades with non-guarantees or like guarantees is in terms of decision points and decision dates. And what I think is so fascinating, you brought up this as a football contract. I think that's a fair comparison because what happens here is there are a couple of different decision points that the Rockets will have. And then it's also like, how big is the decision? And so we don't have all of the details here. I'm sure you'll get into some of it with Kelly Eco. He's fantastic. But it seems like one of them is going to be at the end of this year. So this year happens. They can get out of it scot-free, but if they decide we want more Kevin Porter Jr., then you're going to have to commit to, I think it's multiple years is the preliminary reporting that I've seen. If you want, if you want one more year, you get two at that, at the, at the valuation, let's call it 17, 18 million. And that's, Good for Porter because it's the idea that you're committing to a more significant part of it than a bunch of this contract gets guaranteed. But it's also a significant risk because the Rockets have a ton of cap space. They could be looking at a very different present and future at that point, depending on how Shangoon and Green and everybody else looks. So it's a real risk for both sides. It kind of, in a way, reminds me of the Josh Hart contract, which I also loved because of the, the weird stuff where Josh Hart, we haven't gotten to this part of it yet. But he has a non-guaranteed player option, which means that he can opt in or opt out. But then if he opts in, the contract is still not guaranteed. So it's the closest the NBA has ever gotten to a mutual option, which I actually think they should go to. But it's not in the current collective bargaining agreement. But yeah, so for Porter, it's these different decision points. And so it seems like one of them is going to be after this year. And I think that part of the reason they agreed on this structure of these decision points is that it keeps the pressure on to an extent where it's like, okay, you're, you're getting, you know, you're getting a lot of money for two years from now. Like you're getting, or, or sorry, I should correct it. That, that extension, because the, it's an extension. So this year is locked in and they locked in next year. So the decision point will be two seasons from now. Apologies for that mistake. Um, but so 
but then you have you know you have, you have to keep keep on things to make sure things are going well in order to get the rest of your money and for the rockets this is the it's paralleling to an extent the Joel Embiid situation where Nate and I Nate Duncan and I when we saw it we went oh this is basically a guaranteed contract because the only way out of it is by letting him go entirely right. and right. that's a that's a complicated thing and so it's not and you partially because NBA contracts don't allow this, like that point where it's not guaranteed after the first year of the extension. So that's two years, this year, next year, and then then it's non-guaranteed. Is you're letting him go, like you're going through the waiver process, and maybe you have cap space to bring him back a different number, but like you're, it's it's really an all or nothing proposition. And right. so it's not Joel Embiid where like they basically had to make that decision a year early and we knew how good he was. Like with Porter, there is a much more significant chance that they just walk away from it. But he benefits from that where it's like, especially if the cap numbers look like he's getting higher, it's like, okay, well then he might be getting like significantly more money than some of his brethren in this draft class, despite not having, in at least in my eyes, earned it to this point. Yeah, it's an interesting situation that I'm still trying to navigate. Yeah. Uh, let's well, talk let's about the guys that didn't. Oh, go sure. Ahead. Let's go there. Yeah, the guys that didn't get extensions. I think a lot Is of there what... someone who stands out? Probably Grant Williams. And Grant Williams is a hard guy to calibrate value because it's primarily defense and low-volume three-point shooting, which he's catnip for me. I, I'm a big Grant Williams fan. I thought he was an important yeah, part of a wonderful defensive ensemble in Boston last year. And he also is going to have a lot of opportunity this year with Robert Williams missing time to start the year with Danilo Gallinari out for presumably the entire regular season with that torn ACL. And so Williams is going to get that opportunity. So there is the chance that it's like, oh my God, he's just a starter. Like he gets starter money and starter money is going to start moving up. We're getting closer to 20 to 25 million a year for starters. But there's also a chance that people are like, oh, he's just a cog in the machine. This is Jalen and Jason Tatum. And to a lesser extent, Marcus Smart, maybe even Robert Williams, depending on how his season goes. So I I think that for Williams, it's sort of a parallel in a way to – to Miles Bridges, obviously we hope there are no parallels after after that fourth year to Miles Bridges, but the idea being that it's possible the Celtics just wanted to do something like with Robert Williams, where hey, this is a contract that even if this year doesn't go great, we'll be happy with it, and then if it goes great, then we're going to have one of the steals of the last couple of years. And Grant yeah. Williams is like, well, you know, the difference for me between twelve million or fourteen or whatever they were offering. And 8 million isn't that much. And I could get 20. And so that upside was tantalizing and interesting. And also, like, there's a weird element of this with restricted free agency for some of these guys with, with that of an uncertain presence on maybe they're interested in seeing what's out there, seeing the right. offer sheet market and everything else. And, like, so, I mean, PJ Washington is going to be thrust into a larger role this year on the Hornets than we expected for a variety of different reasons. But maybe he wants the possibility of, you know, not being in Charlotte or having having a team be really interested in him, negotiating a sign and trade. And like as much as Lonzo Ball has been injured, I, I think that Lonzo Ball, like that worked out pretty well for Lonzo. He ended up in a place yeah. that really wanted him. He ended up on a team that had a vision for him as a player. And remember, like PJ and Grant Williams in particular, 
they might be going back at some point to not having the rules they're going to have this year. So getting that time to really see where things are could be very useful for them. The Grant Williams one is interesting to me because what did you think his, what would a bargain for Grant Williams be for you? I'm a big believer. I, I thought that if you could get him for 15 or less, 15 million or less, that would be, that will look good in time. Even if Grant Williams yeah. is the, is the third big man. So the first one off the bench, that's going to be 15 million a year, like a year or two from now. So that would be, that's like middle, that's like good backup money, but like mid-level exception money for that. that that's what I thought. Like, I thought that like 14 million, it, like if you could get him at 14 or like 13 and a half. So somewhere between, let's say 52 and $55 million a year. Let's even just sit, throw 55 on it. Four years, 55 million. That deal is a win to me. And I, I, I kind of got the impression that like that wasn't even on the table from Boston. Yeah. It, it's an interesting question. And I mean, you get into these situations where teams have a lot of other obligations. And I mean, we can talk about the warrior situation if you want, but like context matters here. And like, that was actually what made the Deandre Hunter extension. So fascinating is the preliminary numbers on that. When I kind of like worked it out, they're basically at the tax for next year with everything yeah. in. And that includes Bogdan Bogdanovich opting in. And for the Celtics, like this team is already really expensive. And so what they might be thinking is we get this time to evaluate. We can see where things go. Maybe he gets more expensive, but if he has a good year, then we're happy to pay him. And if he has a really good year, then we're probably doing something different without Horford. And so you can make that decision at that point. And, yeah. and they also like, I mean, Grant Williams, as much as I like him, I don't think he's going to become like a ball in, ball in his hands, 20-point-a-game scorer. And generally <laughs> right. speaking, yeah. low-volume defense-first guys don't get a don't ton get of paid. interest restricted free agency. And Think, you don't think about look. this. Mikkel Bridges is getting paid less than DeAndre Hunter. Right. And, I mean, some of that is the context of the extra year close to the TV deal, but part of that is just the situation that happens. And the you don't have to look any further than Grant Williams' current teammate, Marcus Smart who everybody knew he was a good defender. We worried about what he, you know, like question about what he was offensively. Was he a point guard? Was he not? And he just got squeezed out. Danny Ainge is just like, you're not going to get anything. And he didn't. And yeah. that, you know, that worked out very well for the Celtics. And you, so it's as weird as it is. Like, I think Grant Williams right now, like he's, he's a very good basketball player, but, and, and the weird thing about that is, like, I'm really thrilled for Colin Sexton that he got his money in restricted free agency because, I mean, he didn't get as much as if he had never gotten injured, but he still did pretty well on that sign-and-trade with the Jazz. But part of that, I think, how that worked was scoring is something that teams will always value, at least to some extent. Mm -hmm. And Grant Williams doesn't do a lot of that. And so that's going to be a question mark. And I think those are dice that Brad Stevens is willing to roll. I'm glad you brought up a second ago the idea of sometimes players might not want to negotiate with teams and might mm -hmm. be looking at it as a potential avenue to leave, despite the fact that the team will have restricted free agency rights on them. I don't know that PJ Washington is in that position. I have no idea. He maybe PJ Washington, like hundred percent wants to be there, but Charlotte seems like a mess right now. Like, let's just be real yeah. with it. Right. Charlotte does not seem like a great spot. Uh, this is a good, and this is all hypothetical. I'm saying here, like restricted free agency sometimes is a good opportunity to be able to either just get a crazy amount of money or to leave and, and to hopefully be able to negotiate your departure in a smart way. 
I have no idea if PJ Washington wants to leave Charlotte or not. I think it would be pretty reasonable for PJ Washington to be looking at Charlotte. Uh, they, they haven't really figured out how to utilize him in three years yet. It seems like to me, uh, I think he's good when I've seen him. I, I think that he's a good defender. He can shoot from three. There's just a lot of things that he does that I think is going to make him an impact player on a playoff team. Uh, but sometimes like it takes two to tango. And I think that, you know, not everyone always wants to tango, I guess. Right. And, and I mean, a guy that PJ Washington could, could look towards kind of in the positive and the negative is in his Southeast division. That's John Collins, where John Collins, mm-hmm. like he went into that second contract with the Hawks, not really knowing how to use him. And he, you know, he ended up sticking around, got a, got pretty good money. I mean, so, and if that, how much that matters, John Collins, he's happy, but it seemed like he was dissatisfied with his role basically immediately. And that is, you know, it is an opportunity. And I brought up Lonzo Ball before. Like, if you if you don't want to be where you are, as weird as it is because the current team holds a lot of power, especially for these clearly not max guys, there can be a point where it's just too much trouble. And, I mean, like the, the Pelicans, like, I mean, they made the playoffs last year. They have this very exciting future. If they had given, like, I think they're pretty thrilled they didn't give Lonzo Ball that contract. But... Yeah. So it kind of, in, in a way, it kind of worked out for everybody other than the injury. And so like maybe somebody like PJ Washington is looking at that and going like, maybe it's that the Hornets are going to have this year and they're going to love me, but I want somebody to, and I want to have yeah. that opportunity. And the other part of it is I'm sure a lot of these well, players. And just, just real quick on the PJ thing before we move on to something else. Like if I was the Hornets, I'd be like trying to sign PJ Washington mm-hmm. is why I bring this up for because sure. Like you said, like he's going to get a bigger role this year. He's going to get bigger responsibilities. He's going to get to start. Like if we look up and he's a $20 million a year player at the end of this year, because he averaged 15 points and shot 40% from three and played good defense. That's like not surprising at all. Um, He like, frankly, like has a chance to be like upgraded Grant Williams if he shoots well enough from three. Uh, And we've seen him shoot well enough from three previously at times in his career. So like, Someone like that is who Charlotte should be trying to get under, but not, you know, not everyone always wants to be involved with that. Sure. And there also are circumstances where, you know, you want to, you're trying to get a value because you're locking this up a year early. And I mean, that's, that, that can be the team. Sometimes teams feel like they're negotiating from a position of strength because they don't have to do anything. They can just roll this in and they have match rights. And I think that, tilts on its head a little bit as the cap is going up and you have these young teams that are looking to have cap space, especially, and this is the fun thing you and I have talked about this in previous years, the more players sign extensions, especially the more high value players, the more stars can get in the eyes of the other players because they, they're not competing with Jordan Poole. They're not competing with Tyler hero. They're just competing with players kind of of their own level. And I could see PJ Washington saying I'm better than Grant Williams. I'm going to be starting. I'm going to get this. I could be the kind of the bell of the power forward ball in free agency next year. There aren't that many vets that are around. Like a team could see me as the best option that's available, like potentially the Detroit Pistons. Like they could see that as, Hey, he's a really talented offensive player. We could try him a little bit at a five, but we have a couple of fives already. Like you could see a number of different circumstances, teams that don't have locked in players there and just, why, why not if they're all they're offering is i'm not saying the hornets did this but if all they're offering is 10 million like somebody's gonna offer me that and they might offer me a whole heck of a lot more or even if they're offering him 15 like they're offering sure. him like 460 like that 
I, I probably would play my cards and see what happens in free agency. Or in some cases, your owner is selling the team after being uh, having to deal with a pretty significant scandal of racism and misogyny within the organization. And Cam Johnson uh, ends up kind of stuck out there, not necessarily uh, getting even a real go at negotiations if, if, if there if there is one if there is one negotiation that i could i wish i could get a like a write-up of what each side was proposing it would be cam johnson because he's going to start on a team that even with all of their chaos should probably be pretty good and yeah. there's a chance that his defensive limit defensive limitations get exposed a little bit but that's a pretty great opportunity and also like the Suns are this massive ball of, of uncertainty in terms of their present, their future, how well do they age, like relative to expectations. They were the best team in the league last year in the regular season. Like even if, they, so if they win, if they win 10 games fewer, they're still pretty good team. And how, how important is Cam Johnson to that? And also like who else is on the team other than Devin Booker? It's going to be, and probably Mikhail Bridges, like the whole circumstance is going to be absolutely wild. Well, here's the crazy thing about Cam Johnson too. Cam Johnson's, going to turn 27 this summer right so like he actually this is his one year to get paid like this, this is, is his, his... this is going to cover his entire prime so you're probably going yes. to get his 27 28 29 and 30 years which by most accounts is a player's best best time in basketball right so he needs to maximize his value like honestly like if phoenix look i don't know this if phoenix like didn't even come to the table with an offer that like wouldn't blow me away like just say like look you know we're in the midst of some organizational uh changes right now we think you're great we're gonna take through strict free agency next year and see what happens because you know we understand that you're a terrific player but we're not in a place right now where we can offer you a deal that you're even gonna consider like wouldn't wouldn't blow me away how much do you enjoy it that a lot of these guys who are now still on the wire for restricted free agency play similar positions and roles? Because we're gonna we're gonna find out some preferences out there out there over the next year plus. Yeah, totally. And then like, can you can you? Here's what we'll maybe close on. Can you figure out the Nasir Little deal? That one, he's basically taking like half of what the like mid level exception has potential to be in the middle of that deal. $7 million is still a lot of money and the Blazers would budge. And he, I, I'm assuming this was player driven, not agent driven. And just is like, he's had some injuries and just said like, this is a lot of money. If I, if I retire after this contract, if I'm out of the league, then I will have made a lot of money. And yeah. I hope and expect, I, I thought Nasir Little could very well be a starter this year for the Blazers. I, I wonder, I think he could be a starter in the near term. Like there are a lot of different ways that Nasir Little is an impact player on Portland this year and moving forward. So I'm very surprised that he that he accepted this. But the important thing to remember about this, I always talk about how like the only mistake that players make, and this is more unrestricted free agency, is like not being true to themselves. And so if he wants to take this money right now, more power to him. But I think he could have gotten a whole heck of a lot more a year from now. Yeah, I mean... I guess the one thing that's worth considering in his case is he is still just 22. Yeah. Um, he'll hit he'll, restricted free agency again. Like this, he'll be young. So Nasir Little will be younger when he starts his third contract than Cam Johnson will be when he starts his second. Yeah. Yeah. So that that does make his life a little bit easier in terms of decision making on a lot of this stuff. Like it will 
hopefully he'll be able to establish himself and be a great player and be something of value. And this is a bargain for Portland because if it's a bargain for Portland. That means that he's going to be able to hit restricted or hit unrestricted free agency when he's 26 and be good and still get the money he needs. So, right. you know, sometimes it's just worth, you know, getting the security while also betting on yourself to be great down the road. You know, I don't know. That's a, the, the I, I, 7 million a year is a number that caught my eye though. Oh yeah. Sure. I mean, that was the most stunning extension that anyone signed. Uh, do you have any other thoughts here before uh, I let you go? Um, I, I on a similar line, I was surprised that Brandon Clark took basically you know a little over ten million a year on the idea that that's solid backup money. And I, you know, it's security. You locked it up. I think his uh, restricted free agency contract would have been in that same ballpark. Would have been between ten and fourteen, and so you get it a year yeah. early. That's good. And then also for Memphis, like I had talked about them as being like the sleeping giant of the like they had this like eighteen month window and they locked in another player and now it is difficult to do something with Brandon Clark before the off season next year. And they, so like, it seems more likely that Zach Kleiman and this Memphis front office is intending to keep this team moving forward. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, you know, in the last month basically got rid of 23 million in potential cap space. Cause they're like basically right on the number project projected for next year uh, in terms of what the salary cap is. So, you know, they could have, opened up 23 million very easily next year, which means if you can open up 23 million easily, you can open up in a max cap space pretty easily given just the way that salary cap works now or the salary cap works now. So like, it, it's interesting that that's the road they're going down. Not, yeah. not to say good or bad. It, it's just that they're making a clear decision to bet on the guys that they've invested in already. Exactly. And we'll, we'll have to see how that works out. And they do have a very young core, but my concern as a Grizzlies believer, as somebody who in a matter of hours is going to pick them to finish first in the Western Conference this year, regular season record, is I think their young core is fantastic. I don't know that the surrounding talent is good enough for the eventuality that I want for them of like NBA finals and all that type of stuff. And like Steven Adams, Dylan Brooks, and hopefully some of these other guys get there and I think that one of the biggest mistakes that front offices can get into is thinking that being where they are is good enough to reach the rarefied air. And generally speaking, it takes a whole heck of a lot to get there. I'm sorry. I'm still just picking my job off the floor that you think the Grizzlies are going to win the West this year. I think they're going to have the best regular season record in the West. I don't think they're going to win. I don't think they're going to win. Yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Without Jaron Jackson for the first couple months, even. Yeah, it's fine. I think that I think they'll handle it. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that. Also, like, I give I me think a that, case for it. I need to hear it. Like, I, I then we'll let you go. But I, I got to get this case. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think John Morant missed like twenty to twenty-five games last year. Dylan yeah. Brooks missed fifty, and yeah. they have enough talent to hand, to weather the Jaron Jackson absence. I've also like, I think it's going to be shorter than some beer. I think it's in, and I think I'm thinking more like a month and a half to two months, and. Okay. The Grizzlies, with the intensity they play with and the depth of their talent, even though losing Melton and Kyle Anderson sucks. Like I, I love those guys. I wish they were still on the team. They're going to run through bad teams. Like I, I yeah. think even shorthanded, they should. I mean, Jaws a monster. They've got all these other different things working for them. Desmond Bain, I think, is going to take another step forward. And then they they have kind of unusual pieces that I think will give the mid level team stress, especially when the Grizzlies are at home. 
and then they'll take their share against good teams. I mean, they gave the Warriors, I would argue they gave the Warriors a better fight than anyone in the West did. And that was with, at part times, an injured John Morant. And so I think they, like, I, I think about the bones, Matt Moore talks about this well too, of like what makes a team win a bunch of regular season games and it's beating every bad team, beating most of the mid-level teams and then take holding your own against the top teams. I think Memphis is going to do all of those as long as John Morant stays remotely healthy. Yeah, I, I kind of made the case on the last podcast. I think Jaw's going to be first team All NBA. That was like one of my like takes for the league this year. Um, I made the case that like it's e- it's going to be easier to sop up the minutes that they lost by DeAnthony Melton and Kyle Anderson than what people think. Mm-hmm. Like, also John Conchar like might be as good as DeAnthony Melton. Like, period, <laughs> which makes it easier. <laughs> Well, and even even so, I, I love DeAnthony Melton, but the marginal difference between him and like a pretty good version of him for the minutes they were asking of Melton just isn't that big. I love the guy, yeah. but, and I think he's going to help the Sixers a lot. It's not like yeah, me too. Yeah, it's not like you're replacing Ja. And like remember, like they did really well defensively when Morant was off the floor, and part of that was Jaron Jackson. Like Jaron had a really good year, but yeah. I believe in Taylor Jenkins as a coach. I believe in a lot of what they're doing there, and I think they're going to be really good. Um, I'll give you two other juicy ones just because I was working on my preseason predictions right before. Like, I think there's a meaningful chance that Minnesota ends the season with the best rec- regular season record in the West too. Yeah. Um, yeah. they have I a lot to fig- in the last episode as well. They have a lot to yep. figure out offensively and that game against the Nets does give me pause, but the fundamentals there are actually really intriguing. And then the other one is, um, I did over unders with Arturo Galetti for real GM radio is I think Stephen Curry is incredibly undervalued for regular season MVP. Because there is an argument that if he's healthy, he's the best. He's the best offensive player, and he doesn't have some of the other defensive negatives. Warriors could win a bunch of games this year, and like I think that they like the idea that if Steph and Luca have similarly good offensive seasons, that people are just going to pick Luca when his team might have a worse record and everything else is just it's it's. I, I think it's intriguing that their odds are so far apart. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think the Warriors are going to be very good now. Okay. I'm like, I've like come like all the way around on this where like I was a little bit worried previously, but now I just think they're going to be awesome. Uh, I think we're going to get like a like defensive player of the year, Draymond Green for 65 to 75 games. And then we're going to get great Wiggins, great pool as much as we can get out of clay. Plus they're deeper than they were last year. I think they have like a non-zero chance at 60 wins. Wow. The, yeah. That, I, I just don't know how hard they're going to push, but they're, I mean, they're going to be a really, really good team. Yeah. Like the thing is like, even if you sit Dre for, you know, 15 games or whatever, and you sit like the guy, you can't really sit as Steph, but like they now have the depth, I think to like make up for Clay Thompson missing time. But, but you if, know, you know, when you sit Steph, you sit him against the five worst teams in the league. And, and you, you probably can you probably can still beat them, and yeah. stop them defensively. You play Jordan Poole a lot more. Give give some of these guys some latitude. And I mean, if, if that if if Steve Kerr listened to me, that's the thing I would ha- I would start basically as soon as the season begins. Of like with the teams that we think was the five worst in the league, unless unless you're get like unless it's a really specific circumstance, like you have days off on both ends, just sit them. You'll be fine. It's a good question. Like when, what does their schedule look like to where they can start like messing around with 
playing Steph like fewer minutes. So like they're actually like kind of loaded at the start of the year. They played the Lakers, Nuggets, Kings, Suns, Heat. You probably have to play him in all those games. Mm-hmm. But like, and then you're going to play him in Charlotte because he won't want to sit for a Charlotte game, I don't think. But like they have a back-to-back on Sunday the 30th against the Pistons. Like, do you sit him against the Pistons that, that day? Maybe, right? Or you like you intend you play him the first half, and if you're up by 15 or more, then maybe you have a you have a little bit more latitude there moving forward. And you know they have a back to back where the second game is against the Rockets in early December. Like you could you could start this train a little bit earlier. And I'm interested, especially I mean you and I have talked a lot about Wembenyama and Scoot Henderson. If these teams are aggressively kind of going in that direction, especially for Chase Center home games. And they're just like, they're, they're just kind of tucked in and you're just like, okay, they can, I mean, Jordan Poole is good enough that if he's the, if he's their lead creator, they'll beat these teams. Yeah. So they play the Spurs in a back-to-back at home on November 14th. Mm-hmm. That's one where if Steph plays that game, like, I think I would be surprised, right? I, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised just because it's so early in the season and other than Popovich, coaches just haven't been that proactive yet. And Curry's not Kawhi Leonard, where I, d- I don't know the Kawhi's going to play to back-to-back the rest of his career. But, and Curry, like, wants to be out there. But, yeah, I mean, I yeah. this, this is something I would I would urge, just to, you know, keep him fresh and you're taking out. I mean, especially because some of Curry's injuries have been so random, like the wet spot on the floor right. or Marcus Smart diving into his leg. And, like, I mean, that can happen to anybody, but the amount of time you're on the floor, you're just, it's just risk. You know, it's the bad things can happen and great things can too, but the bad things are what scare you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Danny, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people uh, what you've got coming. I've got a lot of stuff. I mean, um, dunked on and dunked on, which is really dunked on prime. We've also added John Hollinger, which is really great and great work from Dan Feldman. So that is a, the subscription part of it. And then we release a free episode every week. Real GM radio is the podcast I do weekly. It's an interview. Sam is on it fairly frequently and um, lots of great guests. And then we are doing Nate and I are doing the NBA strategy stream, which is the show that we do with NBA league pass. That is roughly weekly. We're going to be fiddling around a little bit with the dates, but we called the game you can watch it. It's really, it's a great experience. It was our dream when we started this like six years, make it happen. And it's been a lot of fun and we might do some other stuff too. So keep an eye on my Twitter at Danny LaRue. Danny's the best. I couldn't be more excited that he agreed to do this. Uh, We will be back here in a minute, minute with Kelly Eco breaking down the weird Kevin Porter deal, because I had to talk to him yesterday just because that brain that deal completely broke my brain and i just needed to talk to someone about it see ya hello we're here now with kelly eco the athletics terrific beat writer for the Houston Rockets. He knows everything that's going on with that organization. Kelly, it's been a busy day for you. Oh, man, uh, has, has it ever. I was going to say, like right before, like you're getting texts from people within the organization. We're like, you know, trying to find a time that works for you. Like it, it's just, it feels all over the map for you today for obvious good reasons. Yeah, because, you know, this is the time of the year when, you know, deals do happen, you know, things are flying around. You got to get on top of everything. And um, I think today, Obviously, with the news of the extensions, 
um, getting done. You know, it was interesting to say the least of how the terms came out and everything. But um, yeah, it's an, another sign that the NBA season is right around the corner. So, <laughs> so let's let's dive into right. what exactly we're here to talk about. Kevin Porter Jr., a very interesting player for a number of reasons, yes. has signed a four-year, $82.5 million extension. That is the maximum of what this thing can be, right? It is guaranteed. I'll let you give the details, I guess, because you're the one that reported it with Shams earlier today. Right. So please give me the details on what this contract actually looks like. So it's a four-year deal worth $82.5 million. The first year is fully guaranteed up to 15, I think 0.86 million dollars. Every year after that has a trigger date. Um the Rockets structured it in a way where and it's pretty interesting because we've never really seen a deal of this structure with that kind of money in the NBA. That's right. reserved for typically the NFL, you know, stuff like that. They essentially have the ability to walk away from everything after year one, if they see fit. Um, so that's kind of how it's structured. Obviously, there are things tied into winning games and and how many games is available for the team, team success and stuff like that. But the biggest takeaway from the deal today is year one fully guaranteed. And then after that, it's, it's up in the air. It's something I've never seen in the NBA before. You kind of mentioned that it's more of like an NFL style contract. That's kind of the right. exact thing that came to mind whenever uh, I saw this deal. And it's obvious why that's the case. And I went into this on the last podcast with Adam Spinella, where we talked about the team potentially looking into extending Kevin Porter. And what I said at the time was, if I was the Rockets, I'd be trying to get them to like a four year, $45 million deal, something like that. And if not, I'd be willing to play this thing out long-term. Essentially, because and if I was Kevin, I wouldn't sign a four-year, $45 million deal because I think my upside is much higher than that. And I think that there is real potential for him to exceed the value of this contract. So the fact that they've structured it this way makes sense on some level, but it also like is weird to me on like many levels. We've just never seen anything like this. And it's kind of breaking my brain, which is why I need to record part of the Wednesday podcast on Monday uh, to just talk about this with you because I, I find it so incredibly fascinating. Kelly, I'll kind of give you the floor. You've been around Kevin Porter Jr. now for two and a half years, correct? Right. So Kevin Porter, what are his, what is your take on his game and how he fits with the Houston Rockets moving forward here before we dive into just kind of everything else involved with this? Right. So it was actually funny today during the well, – when I read the press release, it said that since Kevin joined the team, he's averaged 16 points, 6.2 assists, and four rebounds. I did not know the numbers were that exact, which is surprising. But when you think about it, that's a pretty – good deal for someone that's given that kind of production. I know the Rockets are not a winning team right now, but from where he came to, you know, from Cleveland to, to Houston, having to change positions, become a primary ball handler where people thought he was best served as a, a wing creator. Um, still had that scoring ability um, to average 16 and six as a 22 year old, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's not bad at all. So I think from that perspective alone, from a basketball standpoint, you know, obviously having to learn how to, you know, be a better role player, get to those primary secondary reads, 
playoff for Jalen Green, which is, you know, Houston's um, center of attention. Keep everything in shape because you are the extension of the coach on the floor. And this is a young team going through a rebuild, trying to learn how to be, you know, better NBA players, better professionals. You know, Kevin Porter, from a basketball standpoint, he's very talented, you know, athletic, he's shifty, he's smart. And I know preseason basketball isn't the greatest measure of NBA success, but he has <laughs> looked pretty good dicing up, yeah. you know, picking rolls, throwing lobs, making those reads, those first, second passes. He's looking pretty sharp. And I think the area where the Rockets wanted him to focus on the most, obviously his body conditioning-wise, but just becoming yeah. a, a smarter basketball player because everyone knows Kevin can fill up a stat sheet. But to be a point guard, it takes a different kind of discipline. And it's it's a hard task, and not many have shown that they could do it at this level. And you've seen guys try and fail. But for someone that young to be put in that kind of situation at this stage in the rebuild, I think he's 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 handled it pretty well. You know, obviously he has room to grow. He still has to become a better defender, even though he did take strides last season. He still gambles a bit too much sometimes and can get into ticky tack fouls. Um, but overall, from a basketball perspective, this is a young, good NBA player, and the sky is the limit for this kid. Yeah, no, nobody really doubts the talent with Kevin, right? right. Like that's always been the like number right, one overarching thing right. with kevin like nobody does the talent it's more like in this even bears itself out on the court it's more the decision making right? right it's the decision to make a gamble for a steal the decision to you know drive without a plan sometimes and set himself up for turnovers right. uh the shot selection decisions from time to time for mid-range right like there are there are a number of factors why like there are questions here even on the court and we'll talk about those in a second but like Ultimately, what the Rockets have to decide here is like Kevin Porter as a fit next to Jalen Green, who is going to be a very on-ball centric two guard, I would say, Uh, just in terms of the way that his game is developing. And next to Jalen Green, the idea for me personally is that I would want someone that is a really high level passer, really good defender who can make a spot three. And Kevin hasn't done that regularly yet, I guess is what I would say, but he has done it in flashes and the flashes that he's shown in that respect are very, very strong. Like you can look at his shooting numbers last year in terms of like shot types, for instance, Uh, in in terms of his, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the uh, wrong numbers for this year instead of last year in the preseason, but his numbers last year in terms of catch and shoots, I think that he was like 99th percentile in the league. Right. And that was, and that was right. And and that was kind of one of the overriding takeaways from the coaching staff is that this kid is so talented on the ball, but off the ball, there's a real potential to be a quality spacer and a quality release valve, which, which is going to help Jalen green even more, which is going to help Alper and Shangun even more, which is going to help, Jay Sean Tate, even more, any of their ball handlers that need to find efficient offense. Kevin Porter has shown that he can be a good catch and shoot guy. Now, just as you said, doing it more consistently for the course of a year, you know, as opposed and to volume. segments and volume. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Kevin took 133 catch and shoot shots last year. He made right. them at 49.6%. That is like absolutely fucking bonkers that is an insane number uh that's like among the best shooters in the league number i don't think kevin porter is that but i think he can be you know a 40 percent guy off the catch 
It's just that the volume that he's taking these shots at, he's taking about two of them per game. When in reality, that's like not a crazy number for someone who's going to be playing off of someone like a Jalen Green. He needs to be more willing to take those shots. It needs to be more willing not to just like dribble the ball and like put the ball on the deck. Needs to play better off the catch. Needs to make quicker decisions. Needs to make more um, just rapid processing decisions. When Porter has the ball in his hand, you mentioned the shiftiness. He has this incredible level of shiftiness and power like he's a strong dude that's the thing like he's six six strong as hell but also has like these very fluid hips that like allow him to get around guys he is it's a fast he's a fascinating player on a lot of levels he's a fascinating like asset league-wide and I have no idea what to make of this contract because so many of the things we're talking about here have been seen. The positive things we're talking about here have been seen in small sample size. We haven't really talked about like the turnover turnover issue enough. Right. I don't think like that's been the significant part of his issues uh, at this point throughout his career. Um, he he really does get a bit over aggressive sometimes like there were points especially early last year when it felt like he yeah. and Jalen Green were figuring out yeah the, it was averaging close to like land. four turnovers a game five turnovers a game uh, on first it got Kevin yeah it, it got, it got two, way better throughout the course yeah. of the year as well yeah yeah after the break I think he cut it in half um and the aggressiveness sometimes he tried to be overzealous a bit you know sometimes throwing a flashy pass where a normal one will suffice just trying to do too much and it's young player you know Young player traits, but I think one of the good things about Steven Salas is that he has that bond with Kevin and is almost like a father figure to him in terms of being able to bring him in, reel him in, sit him down, go over film together and look at, hey, you did A, B, and C right, but clean up D and E a little bit. And you Mm -hmm. understand that each and every game as a young player, it can only get better for you. And I think after the All-Star break, we saw – him and I talked to him over the summer, and he told me that for him the game kind of slowed down a bit, and he was able to process things faster. And that's why you see some of the cleanup, if you will, in terms of his playmaking. Now, can we see that for from October to April? That's that's the next test for a young player. But because um, he is he's an NBA wing, like he's he's yeah. in a wing's body. He's a strong athlete. He he can like I see shifty. I think for me. It's and passing I, too. Like it's all there. Like it's had, all there. There was one pass he made from I think it was the first preseason game from the right corner to the left corner, and Jabari Smith was like, "Whoa!" And everyone yeah. just because I didn't see that pass coming at all. And and for him, that balance between him and Jalen Green, I compare it to what it can be or what it should be. The thing to look at would be how Chris and James were right. So at the Rockets' best, you know, they were able to stagger, of course. But when Chris was on the floor. He was such a great catch and shoot guy, and he was a willing catch and shoot guy. Like he allowed James to run the show, and you know, obviously stagger the offense and take turns and everything. But if Kevin can get to that level of, of you know, unleashing Jalen Green while also being a quality guy himself, now you can see what that backcourt can really be. But you know, it's still pretty early. It's still early, yeah. And you know, these guys haven't won a lot of games together, obviously. But right, there's the way that the talent meshes you can envision it in your brain in a way that really makes sense right Right. uh based on the flashes we've seen and here's where we get into like the contract 
of this all, right? And this is where it's like breaking my brain. So I thought that like Kevin Porter, you know, a high level deal with, with him would be like four years, 60 million. They decided to go way high on the number where it's going to be right around like 20 to 21 million in terms of average annual value and be able to get out of the contract for a player that I think we don't doubt the talent on necessarily, as we've kind of discussed. It is something that is a structure that makes sense because either you don't buy the human being involved anymore and you want to get out of it. Or you do, and there's like no circumstance where he's not worth this contract talent-wise, right? Right. Having said that, like this isn't really this isn't really getting him at a discount either, necessarily. No, it's, it's, it's just not. Yeah, and like, I think they're paying full price, even though they have the ability to get out of it, right. which is fascinating. <laughs> like in another respect, it, it's almost like dipping your toe in the water. You know, like you, you, yeah. The Rockets, they love Kevin enough to give him that kind of money, but it's conditional, right? Like, you have to show that you are, you know, able to sustain that level of play, for one. Hold yourself accountable on and off the floor. Show a level of maturity. You know, you are the essentially the leader of this team in terms of being the point guard. I know Kevin all, oftentimes calls it as the head of the snake because – as the point guard, you are the extension of Steven Silas on the floor. You have to get those guys in order. You have to get everything arranged. The best point guards are natural leaders, right? Like Jason Kidd, Chris Paul, um, Steve Nash. You know, if you want to, and if you want to consider yourself among those names, those greats, even as a 22 year old, that might be a lofty goal, but you have to show from day one that you're willing to put in the work. And, and credit to Kevin, he has said that, you know, the Rockets kind of changed his life. Like they saved his NBA career. Yeah. Because remember, on, he was on the way out of Cleveland. We didn't know what was going to happen. Like, just it was such a tumultuous exit that he needed a restart, a clean break. You know, a, a home that would embrace him, embrace his faults, and nurture him. I think in Houston, getting able to work with John Lucas every day, getting able to work with Stephen Silas every day, being around guys like Eric Gordon, now Boban. Um, I, I think I think you're able to be in a wholesome environment where he didn't have that, you know, coming up in the NBA. And that's kind of underrated for a young guy's development, especially one that's been through what he's been through in his life. So I think yeah. it's great. Yeah. It's, it's good for him to go through all that right now. Yeah. And I think that like, that's where we kind of jump into why they're structuring this contract this way. You know, like right. I've done a lot of background into Kevin in terms of like when he was in the draft and everything. And the thing that people tell me is just like very immature because like he just didn't have those figures in his life, like early on in his life to like teach him maturity. Right. Um, You know, like his father passed when he was very, very young. And, you know, like the thing that a couple of evaluators told me pre-draft was like, you know, if you're going to draft Kevin Porter, I don't know if we're going to have interest in it, but like the best thing you could do would be to sign Jamal Crawford because Jamal Crawford like is a, uh, or at the time, I don't know this anymore, but like at the time, you know, was acting, you know, as a mentor to Kevin Porter Jr. And would be someone that would really help him. Um, Having those figures around, you know, like a John Lucas, who he got into a significant verbal altercation with in January of this year, uh, having someone like Steven Silas around, 
that's the kind of infrastructure you have to have to make it work with Kevin Porter. Um, It seems like Cleveland more bought into the talent, but didn't necessarily want to like invest the resources maybe that it would take because they were on a bit of a different pathway. Houston is building very, very slowly and has the resources where they can invest it. It's, It's hard, right? Like all of this is very hard to discuss from like the thousand foot view. Right. Yeah. And I think when you dive into, you know, Kevin and who he is as a person, you know, you kind of see why he needed that nurturing and why he needed that care. And a lot of times, you know, when we evaluate basketball players, we, we kind of overlook that part because yeah. X's and O's consume so much of our lives, but these guys are humans too. And, and people go through stuff and that affects you know how they can go about their jobs. And yeah. if proper care is not taken, you know, things can spiral out of control. And that's kind of what we've seen in the past, you know, obviously the incident in January was something that's was pretty abnormal. Um, just yeah. that kind of, you know, verbal disagreement then having to be suspended and stuff like that. Um, you know, he, he's young. He's going to make mistakes. He, he's owned up to it, which is a good thing for him. And it seems that the Rockets have moved forward with him and clearly they're, they're, they're backing him to be a success, even though they're still going to maintain flexibility because this is a, at the end of the day, this is a business. You don't want to, you know, wholeheartedly put your heart into something that you still need to see, you know, things be corrected and fixed. But I think the deal for, for Kevin, it, it's a sign of good faith, you know, coming from where he did being traded for a second round pick to getting $16 million guaranteed is something to be proud of. And he can easily get the rest of those things guaranteed if he just, you know, goes according to plan. So it's not like they're, they're these unattainable goals, like these lofty aspirations. He can actually get all that money if he just puts his head down, you know, follows the course and, and leads this team. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I ended up ranking Kevin, I think 13th or 14th on my board. Like I, yeah. I, the what I was kind of told basically made me believe definitely like not a bad person you know he's just like immature and is still learning how to be like an adult you know what I mean and there would be bumps along the road but if you invested the time I I think the talent is worth it but right you know obviously he's had maybe the bumps in the road have been a little bit more significant than what I thought (laughs) they would be uh given that he had a weapons uh charge prior to being mm-hmm. traded from Cleveland has had a couple of, you know, incidents, it seems like in the locker room, one in Cleveland, one in Houston, but right. you know, it's, it's a fascinating deal that I am yeah. still, uh, I, I guess like, well, I haven't asked you like just straight up, like, what is your take on this? Cause like, I, I I'm struggling <laughs> to take myself, but you know, you're around it every day. Where, where what is your take when you just, I'm still, I'm it? still like you, like I'm wrapping my head. Cause it just, I would. I never thought I would see the day where somebody would, or a team would, would present this kind of money. But only one year is guaranteed. I've never seen that, and I just wonder if, obviously, other teams would would want to do this. But I wonder how many yeah. players would want to do this. You know, the only other guy I could think of that this might apply to is maybe Christian Wood. And it's funny there's there's or, or Kyrie to be honest, or Kyrie yeah. or, or, or 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 guys along that nature. Um, but. You know, it, the NBA is changing. Um, I think for for Kevin's his situation is unique. You know, he had to learn a different position. Like we don't see that 
so often in this league of a guy having to kind of rewire his brain and learn something which is incredibly hard to do. And averaging 16 and 6, you know, he's he looks like he's doing a pretty good job of it. So I think the the structure of the deal is is still weird to me, but I do understand why both sides, you know, because so, in, in the same breath, you know, if Kevin wants to bet on himself, you know, he's free to do so after after year one, right? So I think it's a deal where both sides have some kind of flexibility too. And I haven't spoken to any agent, any like other agents yet about this deal. I will be very interested to see what the agency community reaction is to this contract. Um, Given the sheer lack of guarantee uh, on a significant deal like this. Um, again, it is more of a NFL style deal as opposed right. to like an NBA style deal. Um, right. Does this kind of deal open the door the just like yeah. slightly, even just like slightly ajar in negotiations for teams where they're like, you know, maybe we'll guarantee 75% of a deal for this star in years right. three and four as opposed to, and then like, does it continue to go down that road? Kevin might be such a, weird situation that it doesn't go there, but um, this is the kind of deal that is structured so strangely that it could have long-term ramifications, which right. is like just another fascinating angle to it. In an already yeah, because and then you look deal. at Houston's cap situation next summer and the years after that, and it, the possibilities are really endless with this kind of deal because they could go in any direction after year one, honestly speaking. Yeah. And, and this team it, might look it, very different after that even. And it's a fascinating trade chip now as well uh, in terms of being able to like get out of a contract. You know, he essentially is now cap fodder for any deal that a team just wants like matching salary that they can get out of at any point. Um, Yeah. Again, (laughs) it's a weird deal. Does their business. Yeah. They they want to maintain flexibility and especially given you know, the current rebuild, you want to have as much of that as possible because, you know, we've seen it time and time again. All you need is a little bit of luck. Strike where the iron is hot, you know, and for a, a team like this that has, that will have a lot of cap room in the near future, you want to maintain that level of uh, spending power. So it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And because they have all of these young players and some picks right. forthcoming, they can be a very real um know a very real player in trades to get stars as well and this is like great matching salary you can do like essentially a 16 million like non-guaranteed part of that deal if the team just wants to get out of you know a certain number yeah it's it's a it's a strange (laughs) deal (laughs) there's just this is this is going to be like a deal that reverberates around the league and a deal that uh this is not the last time we'll be talking. Yeah, about people this. come back to yeah, people come back to us in five, ten years, and this was the start. So. Yeah, or, or just like in a year, like if something crazy yeah. comes up for the Rockets, or two years, or something like that. Like, right. this is not going to be. Yeah, this is a strange deal where yeah. uh, teams are teams are all going to feel differently about it. The agency community is going to feel differently about it. I'm going to be fascinated. Like, if there's a reaction from the players' association, certainly Ooh. not publicly, but like. Could the Players yeah. Association kind of wonder about this a little bit? Right. I don't know. I, uh, I honestly don't yeah, know. That's, a, that's a very good angle. I didn't even think about it. Like the whole Rock Nation and 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 it's like it's it's going to be a lot of talking points for sure in the next couple of weeks. 
And like Rock Nation got Kevin Porter the potential for $82 million. Like, I don't even know that they did a bad job here. It's for just sure. the way the, it looks is, is, is it's just is mind boggling. Yeah. The, sure. the, the wide angle of it is interesting for a right. number of ways, is I guess what I would say. Kelly, yeah. uh, do you have anything else you want to get off your chest? Anything exciting that? Uh, yeah, I've been working on this about? huge rebuild piece. The theme is the Great Rockets rebuild. It's coming out before the season starts. Um, been reporting on it for months. Um, so stay <laughs> tuned on the, the Athletic. Also, subscribe to the ecosystem on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sam, my guy, I got to get you on pretty soon. Talk about this stuff. I'm there. So um, anyway, no, you you guys know where to find me. So that's all I got to say. I appreciate you for bringing me on the show, Sam. This is this is a great platform. I'm a big fan. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, yes, you know, it's it's fantastic. We will you won't be a you won't be a stranger. We'll do it again. Um, do. I don't know if this is going to be a middle section of a podcast. I don't know if this is going to be the end of a podcast. But uh, if the podcast just ends abruptly, know that I. I just had to talk about this deal with Kelly and needed to like figure it out. And if it just ends, this is it ending. If there's another segment, there's another segment. Thanks guys. All right. Thanks man. Like I said, at the end of the last part of this episode, I wasn't sure if that would be, the last deal that got done if that would be the last segment of the show it ended up not being the last segment of the show because i'm here with brad roland we're gonna talk the deandre hunter extension four years 90 million like i said this deal is gonna go or this show is gonna go on the podcast feed tomorrow uh when we do our big extensions discussion but i figured i'd go live on this one and just kind of break it all down with brad why not what's going on buddy Sam, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a weird night, but here we are talking <laughs> extensions. There was a, a, a full two-hour gap between the extension deadline and when it was when it was reported, and it's been a weird one. But I'm happy to be here with you. I am excited to be here as well. I couldn't be more thrilled to get to break down this DeAndre Hunter deal, who I've been a fan of for a long time. I've been a really big fan of DeAndre Hunter as a player. Uh, I thought the second year it seemed like was a real breakout for him. He averaged 15 points, five rebounds, had showcased a lot of the defensive value that we had anticipated from him coming out of Virginia. The problem was he played 23 games that year. And we didn't really get a chance to see the full version of DeAndre Hunter. That is the issue with DeAndre. We have not gotten a chance to see him on the court enough. He has played 139 games in three years. And here the Hawks have signed him to a four-year, $90 million extension because, frankly, DeAndre had them over a barrel. It's exceptionally difficult to find players like DeAndre Hunter, who are six foot eight, who are great on-ball defenders, who can shoot who can create their own shot a little bit. This is what these guys get paid, uh, even if they haven't necessarily proven it yet. Right, Brad? Yeah, I mean, that's the baseline here is even before you get into the Hawks' individual context on the team side where they already invested in him so heavily and they don't have anything behind him at the three and all of that stuff, what you said is perfectly said there. Like, he's a 6'8", two-way forward that has that skill set that every single team wants. And generally speaking – no, he's not proven it to be worth this contract at this point in time. His performance on the court through three seasons, uh, I agree with you, by the way, on year two. Like His year two performance in that sample of 23 games was really, really good. 
But last year he took a step back and he played more, but he also played a little bit worse, I thought, overall. And um, given that he's uh, he's not the youngest guy in the world either for a draft prospect, as I, I know you I, I know you well, know well. So uh, it's interesting. Like it's not a situation where you can just t- kind of take one side as it is on the performance side. He's not been worth this. But on the other side, if he had a good year in year four, he would have gotten a nine figure contract. I'm pretty confident in that just because of the skill set that he offers and just the market and where the cap's going, which I know you talked about a lot too, but like by the end of this deal, new TV deal and like numbers are going to be through the roof and that kind of, it all kind of goes into a barrel and this is what you come up with. Well, and that's the big thing too. A, the TV deal, I think has kind of skewed some of these numbers, right? So this is essentially the OG Ananobi contract. I know that OG Ananobi got four years and 72 million, but with the way the cap is going to rise for next season, uh, this four-year, ninety million dollar contract—that is essentially going to be something like. I, I think the number is. I, I texted it to someone who works for a team earlier. The, the number is basically like fifteen and a half percent of the cap. Uh, the OG Ananobi deal that he signed with Toronto, I think, was something like fourteen and a half percent of the cap. So it's just like a very small, slight raise on that amount. And everyone loved the OG Ananobi deal. <laughs> Uh, it's just that I think that our brains are struggling to react to the reality of what the rising cap looks like at this point. And I thought OG Ananobi had been a little bit more proven and had been a little bit better than DeAndre. had been a little bit more reliable. OG has also struggled to stay on the court from time to time here and there with Toronto. So uh, it, it's just, a, it's, it's, I would almost bet you that they used that contract as the jumping point for this one kind of similar to the Tyler hero and Jordan pool deals where it's like, okay, give me a little bit more than the last guy that signed. Okay. Give me a little bit higher of a percentage than what the OG and an OB signed for when he signed his extension with the Raptors. Uh, it, it just makes sense to me that this is kind of where we are and what we're uh, looking at with this Deandre Hunter deal, even if the numbers are greater because the salary cap is going to continue to skyrocket in the next couple of years. Yeah, it makes sense for sure. And there wasn't that uh, that natural comp in this particular class. Like he lands between R.J. Barrett and Kilton Johnson, basically, and how much money he got in this. And But neither one of those guys is a perfect comp for him. And like yeah. you said at the very top of this, the Hawks, like he, he had the Hawks over a barrel, which is part of this too. And the Hawks are trying to win. And the Hawks are above the cap already with no plans to have cap space in the future and no way to replace him. And all of that goes into it as well. But yeah, I think that's a good point going back to OG. And yeah, I think OG had proven more but hunter was the top five pick and that's sticky like you know like whether whether it should be or not is is a different conversation but it it is in reality it it just is when especially for a team that traded up for him too the hawks invested famously you know multiple assets to go up and get him that that was their guy they wanted to build with trey and it hasn't gone to plan so far but i think they know or at least they hope that as as long as he stays on the floor this is going to look fine but anytime you do a deal like this you're taking the the risk away from the player and putting it on the team and they have to know that too Man, the Kelton Johnson deal just keeps looking better to me. That was a deal that when they when he signed that deal, I was like, "This is cheap. There's no way that he's not worth this contract." Uh, Kelton Johnson, for what it's worth, signed uh, what I believe is like what is it? It's like a four seventy two or something like that. Yeah, it was um, like four seventy four with incentives. So yeah, four sixty eight or whatever the actual number is. Yes, it's, it's 
it's an insane number for someone who averaged 17 points, six rebounds and two assists on 47, 40, 76 last year at 22 years old. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> Kelton Johnson being much younger than DeAndre Hunter as well. Uh, this is, yeah, that's a weird one. That's an interesting comp now that it, I think it, about it. it. <laughs> Honestly, like we just said, it goes back to draft slot. Like, do it you does. think, yeah. uh, do you think Kelton Johnson signs that deal if he's the fourth overall pick? I don't. You know what I mean? No, if like he, it's just yeah. It, if he's the if he's the fourth overall pick, he goes what? Uh, he, he's probably a hundred million dollar player, Kelton Johnson. Yeah, right? and that's uh, that's one of those uh, people don't always believe me when I say that. This is a great example of that. Hunter, you could certainly I think that Kelton has been better so far. You can say you would rather have DeAndre. He probably has higher upside. He's got more physical tools than Kelton Johnson does. But like season for season, Kelton's been more productive to this point, and he gets you know twenty million less because of in part where they were drafted. Yeah, and he's two years younger than DeAndre yeah. is essentially too. That's crazy. I just, that kind of went through my mind, right? As you said that, holy hell. Um, I think the thing with DeAndre that's worth noting is not only did he have them over a barrel because players like DeAndre Hunter are just very scarce. Having someone that's six foot eight, this is this good of a um, on-ball defender. This is this good of a potential shooter. Uh, that can be something of a creator from time to time. It's just really hard to find these guys. It's actually a skill set that the Hawks desperately need next to Trey Young as well. Like this is the kind of thing that when you have it, you can't let it go because especially with Trey Young being as small as he is and being the defensive liability that he is, as good as I think Trey Young is, like I think Trey Young is one of the five best offensive players in the NBA. Um, he does take something off the court defensively and you need to surround him with as many good shooters who are high level on ball defenders as you can, because this is how you insulate Trey young and build a great team around him. Yeah. And since, you know, they've always loved Deandre Hunter, but part of that is like you just said, the skill set that they're looking for and dating back to that same draft night, they purposely took Deandre Hunter and Cam Reddish in the same top 10 with the idea of doing exactly what you just said, pairing Trey with these two-way wings. And the camping didn't work out the way they hoped it would, but you know, you're taking two, you're taking two swings there. You're hoping that, De- that DeAndre now works out as one of them. And you no, know, they kind of invested in a different way with DeJounte Murray to help with the defense. He's a little bit more of a, uh, more of a guard defender, obviously, and more of an all-ball player on offense, but it's kind of the same principle. You're still trying to insulate Trey and making Trey's life as easy as, as easy as it could possibly be. And Hunter is kind of their last bullet to do that at the three. Like, I know I like AJ Griffin, but that's a future facing thing. And the Hawks are in win now mode right now, whether they should be or not different, different conversation, but they're definitely, they're definitely pushing it in. There's there's no question about that locally. Like they want to win immediately and want to win for a while, which is a tough thing to kind of walk that line on. But this is a big year for Hunter. Every time I talk to anybody locally or whoever about the Hawks this year, my X factor has been DeAndre Hunter and every, at every turn. So this is it's not that it changes that much now for the long term because that was already going to be the case but he's really the only guy on the team that does what he does at this point and that's a skill set that when you're facing the Celtics and you're facing these teams that have these big wings he's their only guy to, to throw at them so health is huge for him but just performance wise like he's he was the guy that raises their ceiling like clearly he's not their best player Trey DeJounte Clickapella John Collins they're all better than him right now but He's their swing guy for me, both short-term and long-term. And they probably know that and they're investing in it as, as such. Well, and you mentioned this at the start, you know, this is a guy that was not awesome last year. He did not have a great year last year uh, based on what looked like a leap in his sophomore year. Right. Yeah. So where do you think the best places for improvement are for Deandre Hunter? Where does he need to take a leap 
uh, moving forward in order to be worth this contract. Yeah, I, I think it's a few little things like his his dip from year two to year three. A couple things are like maybe even injury related. Like he's had some wrist stuff. His ball handling got a little bit loose last year. That's an area he's got to improve on. Not that he's going to be this you know huge creator for them, but his handle felt loose to me for most of last season. And I think the turnovers kind of followed. He's not, he's never been a great passer. That's probably not going to be a huge part of his game, but just when you're not a great ball handler and you're not a great passer, uh, that's not a great thing to have on at the three for any team. Even when you have yeah. Trey Young and Ajante Murray at the one and the two, that's the one big thing offensively. And, you know, he got to, he got to the rim a lot better in year two. He shot the three well last year. I will say that's the one thing that he did in year three better was shot 38% from three. And if that's sticky, the Hawks are going to love that. I, I I think he's always kind of been a little bit too in love with his long two game, even dating back to college um, yeah. at Virginia. But I think he's slowly figuring out that he can still do that a little bit. And they encourage it. Nate McMillan likes his long twos as much as anybody. But I think DeAndre taking more threes would be a good thing and making them like he did last year. And the other big thing, in addition to just staying healthy, is like there's no reason why he's a bad rebounder. Like he's 6'10", six, six, sorry, 6'8", six, and like 220, 230. Why is he averaging three rebounds a game? Like him and Trey Young had almost the same rebound rate last year on the defensive end of the floor. That should just never happen. Like, I'm sorry. He doesn't doesn't have to be this great rebounder, but just using his physical tools better on in all aspects. But rebounding is a a very easy one to track because it just like it was inexplicable. He had a 10% defensive rebound rate last year as a 6'8 forward with like bulk and everything. Like it just shouldn't be that way. So it doesn't have to be this breakout for me. That's what I've been trying to stress even before the deal got done, just talking about the hypothetical deal was that they're not necessarily needing DeAndre Hunter to be a star. Like he got some unfair, like baby Kawhi comps early in his career in Atlanta because people are just being silly. You know how, you know how that works with any six, eight yeah. forward, but he just needs to be a high level role player. Like OG's a great example, honestly, not, not that he's necessarily has to be OG. OG's a better defender than him, all of that stuff. Yeah but just like kind of leveling out and taking away the weaknesses because that's part of the appeal is to have few weaknesses. So rebound and handle the ball a little bit better, be more decisive. We've seen good signs in the preseason. It's the preseason. So who knows, but he's been a little bit more decisive. He, you know, you know, this dating back to his college days too. He's always been kind of a robotic player. He doesn't he yeah. kind of thinks the game a little bit too much and is not always the most decisive guy. And I want to see a little bit more quick twitch stuff from him. Just get it and go. Don't think so much. I think we see that a little bit, but it's so early that I don't want to say that's like accomplished, but that's something to sort of circle to. Well, and you see in his passing as well, like yeah. he misses, you know, timed passing looks because he just is robotic and seems to be like, okay, I'm looking. I know I need to make this pass. I'm going to make this pass. And then it goes away. And he's like, oh shit, I actually can't make this pass. <laughs> Because yeah. this guy is no longer open. So it's just that little stuff. It, it's hard because it's just all on the margins with DeAndre. Like it's hard to explain and like dive deep, like because this is a player that should be more effective than he has been outside of that 20 game sample in his second season, right? Like he should be a better rebounder. He should be a better rotational defender. Like we didn't really talk about that, but like I feel like he doesn't often utilize his length quite enough off the ball and make an impact in the way that he is capable of making given that length, given that he's a smart dude, like he's a smart player. It's just that like that twitch that you brought up, it's just not always there for him. And that's what's, it's hard to know if that can come or if it just is what it is. And this could be like a, like a Jeff green style situation Mm. where he's a better on ball defender than Jeff green, certainly, but you know, maybe he'll be more of like a, 
finishing player offensively as opposed to like a true creator where he's finishing possessions by shooting and by creating a shot and shooting as opposed to making plays happen around him. Uh, really interesting player. Uh, I loved him in college. I, I guess I just, I wish that there, I thought there was more there in terms of the ball handling and in terms of the ability to create a shot, but he's always been a little bit more theoretical than <laughs> like what he is in practice, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. And part of the tricky thing with Hunter is that it would have been probably better for the team the last couple of years, if he just became a strict three and D guy, you know, like if you, mm. if, if, if they, if they just kind of encouraged him to not do the things that he's capable of doing, but it's not good. With, it's not what's good for them long-term though. That, that's what I mean. There's this, there's this give and take where, they drafted him thinking he had some juice on offense. Like he's never been a pure three yeah. and D prospect. He's always had a little bit of on ball stuff. The, the I mentioned the long, the long twos and stuff like that, but he's, he's got a, he's got a nice pull up jump shot. He can get, he can get to his spots, take away some mismatches. Like he's got good size and McMillan is as his coach, like emphasizes that he's a, he's very big into mismatch hunting and Hunter in theory can do some of that stuff, but he's not been good enough to justify it, especially on a team with Trey young, like, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they've been so good on offense that trying to run more stuff through DeAndre Hunter is not like an appealing thought because he can do it, but wouldn't you rather just have Trey run another pick and roll and that's that's better offense for you. So they're in this weird spot where it's kind of figuring out what his role is because I think the ship of like him being a star has passed. I think there was maybe a fringe thought of that when they drafted him. They're, they shouldn't be banking on that now. He's not the youngest guy. He's like, like we say, he's 24 years old already. Not that that's super Got old. Turn 25. Yeah, but you can't bank on him like having this huge breakout 25-a-game score. Like, he's not going to probably do that. But they're hoping to still have that middle ground where he can be your third option on offense and have that be part of the deal versus some 3 and D guys that have his skill set maybe become the fourth or fifth guy on offense and they just kind of stand in the corner. They don't want him to do that. Now, it might help them if they if he did that more often sometimes, but there's a little bit of a, of a balance there. Maybe with Jante Murray on the team too, he'll have a little bit less of a playmaking role and he can kind of fit into a more snug offensive fit because that's kind of the question too, is like he's still probably the third guy in a lot of these lineups, maybe the second guy yeah. in some of these lineups. So he's going to have to do a little bit of stuff with the ball in his hands and that's where the ball handling improvement comes in and uh, hopefully some health because – really at the end of the day, a lot of it comes back to health. Like I don't want to make that a, an excuse for him, but you mentioned the games played, even when he's been out there, he's just kind of always got something nagging. It's not like he's, yeah, every, everybody yeah. does that, but there's always, there's a back thing and an ankle thing and a wrist thing. And it's just something all the time. And I, I don't, I never use the injury prone label until it's earned. I don't think we're there yet with Hunter, but he's definitely just had a lot of stuff going on for the first three years of his career. And uh, I don't want to circle this year too much, but it's a big, it was a big year for him before tonight. It was a big year for him before this contract. It was already going to be a huge year for him. Now, maybe more, maybe maybe some more confidence. He's got the money, a little bit less pressure. Like you're not playing, you're not playing for your future earnings. But now it's like, all right, DeAndre, this is what are you going to be now? It's year four, and we'll see. Yeah, you know, like, and you bring up the idea of like the mini Kawhi theory for him, right? Uh, not what he is in actuality, <laughs> but like some of the stuff they run, what they run for him is a lot of that like mid post stuff where he's yep. just rising up using his high release point and shooting over the top. And that's just really hard to guard a lot of the time. Like it is just a very hard shot to guard. He has to make it at 50%, 48% for it to be a worthwhile option offensively. But I don't know. 
it, it's it's a tricky deal. It's a it's a it's a tricky deal because of the injury history. I'm glad you brought up the idea that he just keeps getting nicked up and like keeps, you know, playing when he's not probably a hundred percent, playing ninety percent. That could lead to more potential moments of like upside, right? Where if he's a hundred percent, maybe he's exploding into his jumper a little bit more and getting a slightly cleaner look and getting a little bit more rhythm on the jumper, right? Like this stuff is real. Like that, that is a real potential outcome, but like, I don't think the injury stuff really changes his, uh, the processing, which is ultimately what needs to improve. Like the, the looking at the game faster is what needs to happen. And he's in year four now. Like you said, this is the year where he needs to showcase that. He's played 139 games now. He's played a season and a half. Even if that's not a lot of games, it's still enough. Uh, I think this deals, this, this is the going rate for what this guy yeah. is, like period. Uh, there's This is not an overpay. This is not an underpay. This is exactly what these guys get paid. And it's going to be really interesting this year because the Hawks already have some things where they need to work in DeJounte Murray, which is going to be complicated with Trey young. Uh, they need Deandre to be able to knock down threes. They need to be able to move the ball quickly. Um, and, and they need, they need him to make lineups make sense. Like, is he going to start at the three or the four? Do you think for them? I think Hunter's going to be their three. I mean, they've kind of already basically announced what they're going to do with, with Trey and DeJounte and, and uh, our guy, John Collins. I know you are on my side with John yeah. Collins, who's just a good basketball player and people talk about him like he's not all the time. <laughs> John um, Collins is so good. He's I a don't good basketball understand player. why people don't give John Collins the respect that he deserves. He's a good defender who averages 20 and 10. This is not hard. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think this is a different conversation. I think that's uh a lot, honestly, a lot of stuff is about reputation. Like, you know, this John, yeah. was a, John was a bad defender in college and a bad defender as a rookie. And like that just stuck to him and it's just not true anymore. And it's kind of the same thing with DeAndre Hunter being a top five pick. Like stuff is right. sticky in the NBA. If you're not paying attention, like, and that's the thing about DeAndre Hunter, there's this school of thought that he's this great defender and you know, he's a pretty good defender. Like he's on the ball. He's got all the skills, but you mentioned it before yeah. his all his off ball processing has never been his, his strongest suit. Even in the draft process, he, he like, and John Collins, like he's probably a slightly better defender than John Collins. Yeah. But they're pretty close. Like, yeah, they're, they're different not, guys, but uh, yeah. also I, I will on the Murray, on the uh, on the Hunter thing real quickly since I forgot to say it earlier. I, I do think that Murray coming sneakily might help Hunter defensively, just because they've had to put Hunter on the best guy, no matter who the best guy was the last couple years, and that included point guards sometimes. And now that's going to be Dejounte, and they're going to have Hunter on the big wings as he should, but he's not going to have to guard you know lead guard all-star one night and then turn around and guard this like, you know, six, nine guy the next night. Like he's going to have to be, it'll be a little bit more easily plugged in on like what he's going to do defensively, which might help. Yeah. Like gone are the days of the Hawks having to throw Kevin Herter on like the team's best wing when, which which happened a lot last year. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And and, like, I think Kevin is okay defensively, by the way, it's just more that he can't deal with those super physical wings and like, you know, has his own, like Kevin's a super smart off ball defender can struggle sometimes on ball. If he's not in the right matchup. Uh, Yeah. Hawks, man, they keep drafting these guys that theoretically should make sense together and theoretically should be just like slightly better than they are, but they just don't quite hit that. And I don't know what that's about yet. I still haven't been able to put my finger on what's going on there. I don't think it's like a development thing. I think it's literally just like 
they haven't found the right way to make it all work yet. Yeah, it's not it's not a bad point. I you know, I've liked most of their draft stuff the last yeah. several years. I mean, it's it's generally they're getting the guys that I would consider to be reasonable or better than that picks. I mean, the other one is a Kongwu who's by no fault of his own still behind Capella because Capella's really good. It's not anybody's fault yeah. that they still have to Capella, but and a Kong was awesome. Like I, I like that pick. It was a strength on strength draft pick, but he's a really good player. It's just that he's not as good as Capella yet. And he might be, I mean, he might be this year. We'll see, but yeah, they have a lot of talent. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting team. They have bogey who's kind of injured still and banged up and that might cause some problems for them with some spacing stuff, but they have a lot of talent and, I still think Hunter's the swing guy. I mean, I know this. There's other guys that are also swingy. You know, the, the trade Ajante thing is going to get a lot of headlines as it should. Those guys are really good playing together, and it'll be interesting to see how that all fits. But uh, I think that Hunter really might be the difference between a team that's like in the play-in and and the three seed or something like that. If Hunter has a great season, he might be a six six to eight win swing for them. If he's bad versus if he has a good season, and I don't want to overstate it either, but he's he raises their ceiling or caps it depending on, on how he looks. So this this will be the last segment of the episode today. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Brad, for coming on. Brad, tell the people where they can find you. Tell the people uh, what's uh, what you've got going on here. Sam, well, thank you for having me on the show. I am a listener. Shouts to Spins. Hey, oh, Spins. That's very nice. Uh, yeah, I, you can find – I cover the Hawks. That's my regular beat. I am the host of the Locked on Hawks podcast uh, on the Locked on Podcast Network every day or so that's uh, always content there <laughs> you can find me uh, on twitter at bt roll and i also write about basketball at diamond up rocks alongside another guest of this podcast previously robbie calland martin rickman everybody over there we have fun together i do draft stuff there and nba stuff there and college basketball stuff there we have a lot of fun and uh, that's all i have to share at this point brad brad robbie martin every time i'm in vegas for summer league <laughs> uh, i always try and uh, hang out with them for at least one night because I know that there will be gambling and I know that there will be uh, enjoyable times to be had. They are just absolutely uh, terrific, terrific, terrific people over at Up Rocks. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Go to the YouTube channel. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. We'll be back later this week with an actual breakdown of basketball games. We've been talking so much about theoretical shit. We're now going to get to talk about actual stuff that happens. I'm so excited. We'll talk soon.